Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 76. We also invite you to join our private Facebook group. To receive an invitation, send an email to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com and tell us your biggest need or problem when it comes to Christianity. We'll get an invitation right out to you. I'm John Polstra. And I'm Greg Monteith. This week, we're picking up where we left off, which was episode 75, where we were talking about covenants and promises. And then we ended that episode, and Greg and I talked a little bit more, and Greg ended up on a soapbox about (laughs) Calvinism and a few other things. (laughs) And then during the week, I, as I think I've mentioned earlier, am just currently infatuated with N.T. Wright. And so I went looking for stuff on N.T. Wright and I thought, okay, where, you know, am I following the Pied Piper here with this guy or like, what's, are there criticisms, uh, criticism, valid criticisms of him? And if so, what are they? Are they credible? And the tie-in here is that Way long ago, we reviewed an article by Matthew Lee Anderson from Christianity Today called Here Come the Radicals. I have no idea what episode number that is, but it shouldn't be too hard to find. Mm. And anyway, he was examining Not a Fan and a few other books. And anyway, I tripped. He has a podcast with some guys, and they had a couple of episodes on N.T. Wright. And I started, I listened to about half of one of the episodes, and it sounded like, well, then I looked at the show notes for one of them, and there were several notes to several different uh, Reformed people. Michael Horton, uh, naturally John Piper came up, and a few other people. Anyway, I just thought it was kind of this interesting convergence of Reformed theology slash Calvinism, which is it fair to lump? Those are like the same thing, right, or not? Yeah, I mean, Reformed theology is... Uh... Yeah, I, I didn't want to paint too broad of a brush. I thought it was just curious that here you've been talking about that. I go looking for stuff on NT Wright. I find this, and so I don't know. You and I were bouncing around a few other things, and I was kind of feeling like, okay, where are we going with this conversation? It seems to have taken a an interesting turn, like a different trajectory, just kind of on its own, which is kind mm-hmm. of interesting. And yet, I've kind of been feeling like, okay, but where is it going? And it's like, well. We really have to know where it's going. So anyway, I was saying, hey, let's read a book. Let's read an N.T. Wright book. And I was thinking, hey, we could even throw it out in advance to the listeners that we could read it together and it'd be great. And you're like, well, wait a second. Well, I don't know if we're ready to read Wright. It's like, what? <laughs> why, why not? <laughs> and then you had some interesting thoughts here. So I thought it'd be fun to kind of draw those out a little bit, see where it goes and kick that around. All right. Well, see how much I can I can bring that back. I, I don't. Uh, you've given me the links for Matthew Lee Anderson's uh, blog, and and I certainly would want to do that justice. I mean, the last time we engaged with him, I not only read the post that he put out. I'm not sure if it was an article, but I read through all of the comments, and that was really really illuminating. 
but I felt quite confident that I had taken in and really, really attended to what was being said. I'd, I'd like to do the same thing here. So I don't think I can uh, address anything that was said there. I really, I gave it a quick look. I can't say I gave it even a, um, much of a read. No, just that's a fine. Skim. But go no, but go back. To, but your thought of no, we're not read. I think as a, we were chatting back and forth late one night or something, and you were saying something like. It's bigger than N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright has done some good things and some helpful and useful things, but it's mm. it's bigger than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it is. And I think N.T. Wright has, has done the work that needed to be done in the area where, in, in, in that particular area where it needed doing. So he's done the exegetical work. He's done the hard work of saying, you know what? We may have 1,500 years of tradition in terms of Christian interpretation and doctrine in these areas, but that does not make them correct and bulletproof. And he's gone back against, you know, there are a lot of big names, in other words, in the history of Christian thought, who would stand against N.T. Wright in terms of his perspective. But again, we had this discussion several weeks ago about the difference between the eminence of persons and the evidence of facts. I want to be reliant upon the evidence of facts. I want my positions, in other words, to be buttressed and supported by the facts. Somebody may be entirely eminent, right? I mean, I'm not saying that Calvin and Luther and uh, um, Augustine are, s- are intellectual slouches. That's, that's by no <laughs> means the case. But that doesn't mean that, that because of their stature and their historical placement and the roles they played in the development of the church, that they're right and they're correct and N.T. Wright is incorrect. Well, no, and that's what's so funny is I was listening. So I, I bought, you know, two or three books and I've started all three of them and haven't made much progress on any of them. Then I downloaded all these podcasts <laughs> and I'm listening to them and I'm having this sense of like, this guy sounds so right, but what if he's wrong? What if, you know, and and it was interesting in the, the first episode of the podcast of Matthew Landerson and his co-host, one of the guys was, was taking real issue with NT's right handling of certain periods of history that he had gotten it wrong and anyway it was just i don't know it just kind of raises more questions for me of like okay yeah how do you who like if you're gonna throw if you're gonna throw like just totally jump on like one person's bandwagon you you run the risk of kind of i don't know being led astray or mm-hmm. uh what's a, i don't know what's a more balanced way of seeing this well, I mean, you, you, you're right. It's, it's. I, I think it's the entire. You see, here we we had this discussion a little while ago, and 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 I would say the terms of engagement are themselves a problem. So what I mean by that is, <clears throat> there's a there's a discussion that's been ongoing for some time. I mean, N.T. Wright's. I think he really appeared on the scene in the early '90s with the publication of his monograph. A monograph is is kind of the. Uh, at least in the uh, the humanities, is the 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 epitome, the, the pinnacle of academic um, um, investigation and and assertion or argumentation. I shouldn't say assertion. I should say argumentation. Pardon me. And, and real quick, the tie-in. I don't think I said it really clear. Was as I, I guess I was starting to feel like N.T. Wright was credible because of his eminence, because of all the positions he's held, mm. because he has this great English accent. 
because he can talk like forever on all these different topics and it all sounds so wise and sounds makes so much sense. So that's the yeah. tie in I was trying to make with eminence. I hear you. No, and it's a really good point because it because <clears throat> to come across this guy now, he is entirely eminent. Right? Much more so maybe than somebody like John Piper. Now, no, 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 twenty years ago those worlds were reversed. And and as I was saying, you know, with the publication of um a climax of the covenant, that's when N.T. Wright really started coming on the the radar of a lot more people. Uh, he really made a big splash with that. And I think it's important to recognize that he is an exegete. So he's working with the text. And and as a result, you know, I know it's this isn't easy. I certainly don't have the skill to do it. But where he's wrong, I mean, it's not like he's he's creating his own texts, whatever. There is a fixed text, more or less. I mean, I'm not looking askance at text criticism and some of the textual variants that exist with, you know, the New Testament or, or the, the the biblical text in general. But uh, you know, if we can kind of bracket that out somewhat, we can all access this text. It's not like he's the only guy, and he's got this this kind of he's created his own text and said, you know, here's my religion, right? And so, in other words, there is plenty of scope and availability for those who disagree to put forward counter arguments on the basis of what? Of sounder exegesis. The reality is, as far as I know, in academic circles, no one has done that. Here and there, perhaps, his reading of this or that verse, in terms of, I don't know, areas that aren't his within his expertise, perhaps. But in terms of what he's seeing with Paul, uh, and certainly in terms, I think, of what he's doing with, you know, talking about the Gospels and how, you know, we, they really somehow don't play a role. In fact, it's much more the theology, if you will, within the creeds, the kind of the way we've summed up the Gospels, you know, born of a virgin, oh. uh, you know, crucified uh, no, under Pontius Pilate and died, right? <laughs> no, life- what, was so, what was so funny about reading that section was that it was... With, cause I remember when you raised this, I don't know how many episodes ago, and I thought, oh, there go all our listeners. Greg is mm. Greg is just totally like down <laughs> on the creeds. It was like, yeah, <laughs> they missed the boat. And then for him to say, there's that, well, he, he maybe said a little more nuanced, but he's like, there are values in these creeds. There's value in the creeds, but they're in some ways very short-sighted. They take a very short view. Yeah, I mean the creeds are this kind of um, point form theology at its most condensed, but should never ever be conceived of outside of the Gospels, and should never be used in isolation from the Gospels. That's just ridiculous, you know. And I think it's it's incredibly counterproductive. But I think that's been done. Let me stop there. Let me go back to what I was saying about a little a moment ago about. Uh, the terms of the dialogue or the terms of the conversation, we need to challenge those. So in other words, we're, we're having a conversation about the right way to view God. And on the one hand, uh, can we do that without theology? I would say no. No, we need theology. Can we do that without the biblical text and without exegesis? No. We need, we need all that. But to base it on that alone is wrong. That is a dire mistake. Just as it would be, I think, and N.T. Wright is highlighting that in his more recent book, How God Became King, The Forgotten Story of the Gospels, which I think was 
All right, I won't guess. Right here in my hand, so I'm going to open it up. 2012. So, I mean, it's more recent. But he's, he's moving out. He's saying, it's, no, it's not just about Pauline theology. It's not just about justification and uh, righteousness and gospel and salvation and what all these things mean in terms of the Jews. It's, it's, we're, it's bigger than that. We've got to include the whole, the whole of the text. You know, right? is very keen on situating the story of Jesus within the broader story of Israel. In other words, putting the life and death, you know, and I literally mean life, the whole of that life, that entire story within its greater story of the covenant and God's dealing with Israel and seeing that as what? As a way for God eventually, this is the plan, to engage with all of humanity. But that engagement exceeds what's talked about in the text. That engagement involves both, let's say, experience and being in the world as a human being, right? So when we're talking, you know, and none of this is, is, is typically part of this discussion. You know, in other words, we're talking about theology. We'll talk about what Luther said or what Calvin said. And I think one of the most important criteria for understanding this and, and for validating some of these perspectives is what do they do? How well do they allow us to flesh out and how well do they reflect back our understandings of what it is to be in relationship with God? How well do they stand up to what we know about human existence on this planet from other disciplines? In other words, how well do they interface with disciplines such as philosophy, psychology, natural sciences, biology, neuroscience, economics, etc.? Now, this is key. This is key. We are moving and we must move out of this constricted dialogue that only will allow, in terms of the, you know, the, the, the question about how do we understand God, which is really what these theological, uh, well, it's how, how do we understand God, how do we understand humanity, and how do we understand relationship between the two. That's what we're looking at in these discussions. That is what is at stake. Who is God? What slash who are human beings? And how are the two to interface? What's, what's it supposed to look like? And what's that about, right? That's what we're arguing about here. And we're doing so totally from a textual basis. Should we remove the text from that, uh, that, that, that interaction and that engagement? No, I think we cannot do that. But we have been so centered on it. It has not only taken priority, it has excluded all of the perspectives to the point that, you know, people, even like N.T. Wright, uh, are waving their, their hands and saying, hey, 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 you know what, um, you fellows over here, you've adopted a philosophy that has nothing to do. I mean, this philosophy isn't, it's nothing to do with the Bible. It's not endorsed in the Bible. It's, it's not advocated. But you've brought it in and you're holding it as though it's, it's the right way to see the world. And, and that would be, for example, an Enlightenment philosophy, a modernist philosophy, uh, a philosophy of uh, – basically following Rene Descartes from the 17th century and uh, trying to gain certainty through a particular method or way of approaching the problem. And I'm not saying everybody does hold that, but typically and throughout much of the 20th century, the majority of evangelical Christians held such a view and did so unknowingly to their detriment and to the detriment of those that tried to engage with them. Because where people would... Are you saying like with the Bible? Yeah, with how they'd view the Bible. I mean, this comes down to that whole thing. You and I have talked about this how many times? Well, no, there was that one guy I was writing back and forth to where th- that he said that 
the Bible is the ultimate authority over everything. No, was, I guess it was, I... It was a long I, time ago, but he was basically, you know, you, we, we can't trust our senses and we can't trust our emotions, but the one thing that we can count on trusting is the Bible. That's what you like. The, the Bible breaks all the, you know, if you've got a tie or you're not sure, really, the Bible is the final... The Bible has to be the final authority because of its, you know, it's tangible and independent of us. Sounds like the Matrix. Sounds like somebody's... <laughs> Plugging into the back of my head. I don't have a USB port in the back of my head so somebody can plug the Bible into me. My senses are engaged. I use my eyes to read. My, my, my faculties are engaged. I use my rationality, my imagination. I have emotional responses that come in and interplay. That's a totally bogus perspective. I, I, I thoroughly reject that idea. But how, would it, how do we know that your perspective is, is better or right? Show me, show me a case where any, any source, anything such as this person is advocating can be employed in the way that this person is suggesting. And I'll take a deeper look. What, what, can, you, what can you access that has – so that you – you see, this is, that's, it's a thoroughly enlightenment proposition. In fact, it's, it's even kind of stripping Say away. Say more it's, about it's, that. What, what can you read that doesn't employ your senses, your eyes? And if you're reading it, how are you failing to use your faculties? Such as, depending upon the genre, at least your rationality, likely your imagination's coming into play, particularly if it's something new or if it's fiction or whatever. You might have emotional responses that this text is actually trying to elicit. The, 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 the New Testament texts are rhetorical, particularly the Gospels. They're rhetorical in nature. They're trying to persuade you. They're trying to have what we might call in speech act theory, we talk about the perlocutionary force, which means the impact. They're trying to impact you. That's not just, oh, that's a good idea. You know, there's more than that. <laughs> They're trying to grip you. If you don't allow yourself to be present to the text in that way, you are actually doing disservice to the very text you are trying to honor. Bad move. So when people suggest something like this, I have no idea how that's possible. I don't believe that anything on that of that ilk can or should take place. I mean, I don't even think should's the right word, but I think should means um, I'm referring to advocating that type of enlightenment philosophy, that type of modernist view that says, I am a complete neutral observer. This thing is external to me. I just simply have to take the right stance. I have to line it up correctly, like lining up a golf shot. I have to get my lenses focused right, like focusing a telescope or uh, a macro lens on a SLR camera, and then I will take the perfect picture. I will understand. I will have the full perspective. Of course you won't. So that, would be, would, that would be God. That would be claiming to be God. In other words, I'm also pushing back against a notion which in Christianity is called idolatry. That is an idolatrous notion. It is claiming to have a God's eye view. So some would claim that the Bible is like the complete revelation of God, that that's all we really need. Sounds like you wouldn't agree with that. Well, it depends on what you're looking for. If you mean, and I don't think it's complete. No, not at all. That's ridiculous. I mean, in the, the, the Gospel of John speaks of the, Jesus as the Logos, the Word. Jesus far exceeds the words uh, that are written in the text, right? There's much more going on. And so, uh, is it the complete revelation of God? No. Is it sufficient? Yes. Is it sufficient for what purpose? For allowing us to understand enough of who God is, enough of what and who human beings are, and enough of what the advocated 
relationship between the two should be. Wait, what so that explain, relationship should look like. What's the new one? That's very... So you said the difference between complete and enough. Yeah, it's like Say exhaustive and sufficient. Well, it's sufficient. Like if somebody wants to say to me, listen, this text here, I've got, I've got, the, I've got an NRSV in my hand, NRSV version of the Bible. This thing is completely useless. It's got, it's incoherent. It cuts back against itself. It does a whole bunch of, I don't know, textual missteps that, that simply make it both hard to understand, completely unrelated to current ex- existence and, and, and what we know now about what it means to be a human being, and completely unreliable in terms of a source of information to point to any sort of divinity. Well, I would take issue with each one of those statements, and I would work if that person was interested in doing so, if they really were interested in the conversation, um, my perspective would be contrary to everything that I just stated. But it doesn't mean for all that that I would say that this text is somehow exhaustively and, and without any failing. You know, this idea of this, this infallibility. We've, we've set up a way to protect God in determining that the text should be completely compelling without error, or that the pack, the text when, I guess this is the Calvinist point, that the, the text or the notions of the text when enlivened by the Holy Spirit um, cannot fail. They will not fail in their purposes. And, and I, I think the Bible is pretty clear. I think, I think God can, and I certainly remember from my position um, in 1999 when I was at that moment of reconsidering and everything was there before me. It was like the whole stretch of what I've been doing for the last, my life for the last, I don't know how many years. And I just knew I had a choice. I would break myself. I would become a self that I had through my entire life worked not to be. And to all the people that I cared about claimed not to be, I would become that person if I did not, if I wasn't honest with myself and said yes, and kind of, you know, confessed both in the sense of uh, claiming and also in the sense of admitting, mostly admitting against some of my better judgments across many, many years that I was a Christian, that I actually, I had enough information, not just to possibly believe, but to be compelled, to have compelling belief. But none of this is, is, is exhaustive. Exhaustive would be being with the risen Christ over an infinite amount of time. That would be exhaustive, right? That would be fully. And, and, but the reality too is there's still more than that, right? Because there are distinctions between Jesus as God and the Father, God the Father as God. So maybe I'll cut back on what I just said. Uh, that would be moving towards being exhaustive in that sense. But, but there's still more. But, but none of these things, I mean, we're looking for something that human beings can't have and don't need. We cannot have exhaustive certainty, full knowledge. That is not how we work. That is not how life works, right? But and we I'm should pursue saying, it. Uh, I know well, I do in certain things. It's like, oh, if I can just get, if I can just, well, it depends on what it is. But I would say, yeah, there are certain things it's like, oh, just give me just enough, and that's good. And there are other things it's like, oh, no, if I just understand this inside and out, then it'll really work. Then I'll really get it. Okay, but that's different than exhaustive. 
that's different than complete. Like you can, you can say, hey, you know what? I'm willing to hang my hat on that. I can pound the nail into my wall and that, that, that nail will hold my hat. The more stuff I start putting on that nail and the more time that nail's in there, eventually that nail might not hold. That nail's really, really good. It might be into the stud if, I, if we go a little further with the analogy. But even then, it might not hold depending upon what I put on it, right? So I guess what I'm saying is the notion of being exhaustive or being, uh, having uh, certainty, having certain knowledge is a knowledge that exceeds, it's a possibility that exceeds human being. We can't have it. We can be really confident. And I can tell you why I think N.T. Wright's perspective is correct. So, you know, all the hours and hours, I don't know how many I put in on accordance searches and all the notes I've taken. And I realized just the other day, um, you know, some of the books that I have from my studies that were really important all my books have notes in them. Some of those important books have tons of notes in them. Some of the journals I have are just chocked a block with, with really important stuff. And I think just recently, I've been using the same Bible over the last number of years to take notes. And just recently, the, this, this particular Bible has now become the most note-filled book I own. It's the one book I would grab if I was going out of the house and it was burning. Because it's, it, ha- it has more of my, my energy in it, right? But I'm not going to be able to convince somebody. Like I might get on, the, on a uh, discussion with Matthew Lee Anderson or somebody else. And I can be as eloquent as I want to be or as I can be. And I can be as knowledgeable as I am. And I can have put in the hours and the hours and the study and all of the reading. But I don't have the ability to convince him even if I am correct. I don't have that sort of absolute knowledge that is going to register with somebody else as certainly being true and is going to be compelling necessarily for them. You you, you know, like I'll put the Bible down, so to speak. I'll put down the study on this question of covenant or the earlier questions we've been talking about, about covenant and promise, looking at, you know, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. At a certain point, I will put that down and I won't keep working on it. But it doesn't mean that somebody at a certain point later couldn't raise something and I'll think, oh, gee, that's really interesting. That's a bit of a challenge to the perspective I hold. So there's that too, right? Have I lost you? Mm, keep going. <laughs> well, it's just that there's a degree of completeness which is not complete. There's a degree of completeness which does not represent. I get it. I get it. <laughs> oh, hey, why don't we tie this back into rigor? Okay. So a rigorous approach would say the more important the issue and the more important the, that I uh, understand and come to a decision on this particular issue, the more I hope and aim for completeness in my, assess- my assessment and understanding of the issue and whatever's involved with it, right? So I want to be rigorous. I want to approach, I want to approach a degree of completion that's going to vary from task to task, subject to subject, based on how important that subject is. So for me, understanding this, this piece about covenant and promise is really important. Because this, for me, is the independent work that I do outside of whatever N.T. Wright has said. Once I've got a good grasp on the text, and once I see what's going on in the text, I'm not interested in, in like, I, I wasn't, 
raised reformed. I wasn't raised Presbyterian. I have no, absolutely no attachment, no allegiance to Augustine, to Luther, to Calvin, to any of those guys. You know, having left Christianity and become an agnostic for seven years, um, I let a lot of my traditions go. And although that was a tough time in my life, I think it had the advantage of allowing me to step back in the most complete way. I mean, there's no more complete way than saying, I, I reject this religion. And I did reject it. And I rejected all the tradition that I could and that I thought was related to, you know, the Christianity I had held. But as a result, I don't feel any compunction to say, oh, gee, yeah, yeah, these guys are really smart and I need to listen to what they say and, and do it. No, they, they maybe are really smart. They maybe, are, they maybe have done some really good work. And, it, and it's important for me to, you know, be aware of that and be up to speed depending upon, you know, what's going on, what I'm studying, uh, whether these things are raised or not and by whom. So is this what you mean sometimes when you say we need to like challenge the rules of engagement? Yeah. Well, the, the whole thing about it, just, just leaving this as a theological and or exegetical um, discussion, you know, uh, I think that's, that's totally off. Now, I'd be quite curious to know, because I think you had said uh, earlier that one of the fellows in this podcast with Matthew, Matthew Lee Anderson was challenging Wright's view of the, the history of something or other. It was something about how, well, the first 100 or 200 years A.D., he got that right, but when he gets beyond that, he doesn't put all the pieces together the right way, or his his view of history is incorrect. That's Again, you have to go back and listen to it. But it, So that, yeah, that, that was essentially what I remember him saying. Well, that's interesting because I thought he was bringing in the discipline of historiography proper, which is history writing. That doesn't sound to be what he, like what he's saying, and I'm not sure. I don't remember the context. But for me, the takeaway was, oh, I just assume N.T. Wright has all this squared away and is, quote, right. But <laughs> um, uh, here's another view that says, well, he gets this stuff right, and he does a really good job of taking a very, very comprehensive high level view and tying other and and showing how everything comes together but mm -hmm. in the way he does history over here don't agree with it i'm like oh, okay that's interesting well you know i'm holding for example let, let's 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 keep on that nt right thing i'm holding uh an even newer book this is published in 2014 i think late 2014 it's only just come out surprised by scripture and he's he's nt right is for the first time that i know of approaching the issue of the historicity of Adam. Is there a historical Adam? Uh, I haven't read it yet. He's got at least 16 pages dedicated to this. Um, but my hunch is that he's done a good job because I think he's a, he's a good researcher. He does his work well. My hunch is also, however, that George Deepstar and Greg Lowry have done a better job. So they have published four articles, which will be coming out in a book that look at Genesis one through three. I think that book is actually already out, though I can't bring to and mind. And what's the their take? What's their take? Because I've always just assumed that that your your take and probably their take is that Adam wasn't a real person. Well, no, I, I don't which think which will lose I, us a whole bunch of listeners. Well, <laughs> it, 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 or it, it would definitely be scandalous in the circles I grew up in. <laughs> Yeah, well, let me say it this way. I have, in the same way that I have no commitment to Augustine, Luther, or Calvin, I have no commitment to Adam. Mm 
So if Adam is real, I believe in Adam. If Adam is not real as a not person, is not not real as a, as a as an existent extant person in the past, then I don't believe he was. In other words, I'm committed to the truth of the matter. Finding out that truth, well, that's important. We need to engage fairly attentively with each other as to how we would go about doing that and what counts, you know, what counts as truth value. In other words, if, we, if there's a truth claim, we've talked about this before, what counts as truth value for that claim and how is it adjudicated? How are those claims, in other words, proved or disproved? But I'd have no commitment to Adam being a real person or not. It doesn't matter to me. I happen to have an opinion on it. Right, but I, I would hope that every single Christian who has an opinion on it has holds the opinion they hold because they think it is true. If you're holding an opinion simply because you know what, if I don't hold this opinion, I can't stay at my church. If I don't hold this opinion, then I might think a whole bunch of other things are wrong. If I don't hold this opinion, then I can't keep having coffee with the same people I typically have coffee with. In other words. If there are reasons for holding a belief that are divorced from the validity of, validity of the belief itself, this is not Christianity. It's a whole bunch of other things. And you can do, you know, people can do whatever they like. They can hold whatever the belief they want to. I'm not getting in the way of that. But I would make that point very, very firmly. That is not a Christian reason for believing this or that. So you can be a Christian and have non-Christian reasons for doing things you do relative to your Christianity. That goes by a whole bunch of different names, whether that's hypocrisy, whether that's, yeah, we'll go into, we'll go into any more of those names. <laughs> we'll just leave those alone. I took us off track as I'm apt to do. You were just saying, you were just comparing N.T. Wright's work in that area and these other people's work, and you were going somewhere much different than that, I think. I just I just think that it's one thing to think that N.T. Wright is a good speaker. I think he is. That he's terribly well-informed about certain things. I think he's not only terribly well-informed, I think he is the, 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 the preeminent scholar, the preeminent Paulian scholar right now. And that means a lot. It means a lo- an awful lot when you're talking about Christian theology. But, I, but something I want to come back to, the terms of engagement— the terms of engagement are simply what the text says, if you like, what the text indicates, what is written there, what is the indicate, what it's indicated, what's the thrust, the gist, the trajectory of meaning of the text. I think that's a problem because the very claims of those texts are that there is an entity who is real, who exists, who seeks relationship. Wait, what's the problem? I missed that part. Problem is you got a whole bunch of people talking about what's written down and how that plays in, but you're not talking about how their views do or do not invigorate a notion of relationship with God, let's say, or how they dampen it, how they enliven it, or how they undercut it. That has to be taken into consideration. And I think we've done so little work. The church has done so little work on the notion of experience and what it is to be to experience God, to be in relationship with God, to, in other words, we've talked, we know a lot about textual exegesis, and you can have people from many different camps who would still agree about good exegetical method. They might not come to the same conclusions, ironically, but they might, you know, be able to spell out either good exegetical method or what such and such a person or such and such a a viewpoint holds as being good exegetical method. I doubt you would be able to have 
a dozen people at an SBL, Society for Biblical Literature conference, give you an intricate, involved, and sufficient, for them to feel sufficient and for anybody hearing them to say, yeah, that's sufficient, that's a pretty good job, account of what constitutes reading experience and understanding experience. But God is somebody that we don't just read about and understand intellectually, we relate to and engage with emotionally and experientially. So how is that part of the discussion? Ah, if you I see have a where theology and it's, it's, it's blowing holes in people's ability to relate with God on the terms that seem to be laid out in the text, you got a problem. You've got a big problem. So when N.T. Wright says something along these lines, when we look at the way that God has engaged with Israel and the promise made to Abraham, and we see that it was God's intention to move from a small group of people to a larger group of people, why on earth would it seem reasonable that God would then move back to another smaller group of people, the elect, the uh, those who've been chosen, you know, those who are, you know, in, in terms of uh, Reformed theology? There's a, that's an entire, that, that's, that's not really an experiential piece, mind you, that's more of a sort of a logical piece. But the experiential impact is this. You're telling me that that God has made a plan for the entire world and that that's now open to me and the whole majestic sweep of this story through Abraham, Moses, the people of Israel, David, through Jesus. But the reality is, unfortunately, that I can't know, even as a Christian, whether I'm in or out. The reality is I can't really know that this God who loves me that much loves me enough to say, hey, you know what? Yeah, you'll, you'll still be around. When, when everything's all said and done and I come back and claim my own, you're, you'll be part of those people. How does that hit you emotionally? What does that do for you? Now, this, that, that question is verboten. That question is an indication in the minds of 90-some-odd of percent of scholars that somebody has misunderstood or is misengaging with the text. Quite the opposite. To engage emotionally and to bring your whole self to bear in this is literally to be fully seeking relationship with God, who is fully seeking relationship with you. Yeah, the way you describe that, I, I'm thinking to myself, does Greg have the right view of of, of, of Calvinism and what they believe? Is it really? Is that is it that clear and simple? Yeah, you can't be sure that you're 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 in quote unquote. God's choosing you. God may not choose you. Based on no, what? It's, it's don't John know? Piper writing in that essay about his sons, and God, he goes in and prays for his sons every night, but God may not choose his sons. Are you out of your mind? Pardon me, but are you out of your mind? How does that hit you on an emotional level? How are you able to reconcile the notion that God is loving and just and kind? Well, because God's ways are not our ways. It's a mystery. Exactly. But as we've talked about last time, that's a false application of mystery. That notion of mystery, in fact, it is just the opposite. It is just the opposite. When you're reading that in, in, in Ephesians 3, it is the conclusions in Galatians 3 and Colossians 3 that count. Boom! There is no longer Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. Christ is all and is in all. Everything has been ripped open. All of the hierarchies have been destroyed. All peoples have the possibility of being in right relationship with God. How? Through faith in Jesus, 
who is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Boom. So when John Piper wants to put that out there as his perspective, quite frankly, I have to say, in no other area of my life would I allow that. In no other area of his life would he allow that. I can't believe he would say, my wife deeply loves my children, and I pray for them each night. But my wife has said many times she'd like to kill them with an axe. I can't be sure she will or won't, but I pray that it won't happen. <laughs> oh, you're making... You're... <laughs> Come on. I thought you were quoting him. <laughs> no, I'm not quoting it's him, but example. I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a parallel here okay. that I think is, okay. is, is sufficiently... It, it's, it's, a, it's a sufficient parallel to merit you know, the, the, the head shaking or hopefully elicit the head shaking that, that I think should be elicited about this type of thing. It's just, it makes no sense to me at all. So how did you know? I, so why, I didn't know I was going to get you so fired up. What is, what's at the core of this that makes you so passionate about this? God loves us enormously. God, I, I, I certainly would not be here talking to you about this advocating Christianity, I did not come back to Christianity because I got a few things wrong. I did not spend seven years as an agnostic and back out of, back out of a, a very dedicated commitment to Christianity on the basis of some intellectual ideas or some bad theology that later somebody helped me figure out. Involved in my return to Christianity was literally experiencing God, having experiences of God, having praying and seeing things happen that had profound implications for my self-understanding, my understanding of others, my understanding of God, and the relationships between the two, particularly between myself and God. Everything I've experienced contradicts what somebody like Piper would present. Now, now is my experience alone enough? Not at all. But interestingly enough, my experience seems to conform with a lot of what's in the text about God. And, you know, at the end of his, um, what St. Paul really said, uh, his book entitled What St. Paul Really Said, and this is N.T. Wright, he talks about Romans as being an account, an epistle, um, a book focused on love. I could not agree more. I think it's, he's, he's got it bang on. But when we start warping the words... Right? When we start warping love so that it doesn't mean what you or I or anybody in our society that we wouldn't say imprison would mean by love. When we start doing that because God is God, then we are into a place where we cannot count on anything. Right? And, and I think particularly from my past, I know what that means. When love can mean anything, it can mean abuse. And that's a point where people need to just back away. And that's what I did. And I would do it again. You know, and then perhaps that's a, an audacious thing to say, but I guess I'm coming back to my notion about Adam. I'm not committed to Adam existing or not existing. I'm committed to the truth of whether Adam did or did not exist. That's my focus. And I'm committed to the truth of who God is. A truth that I think needs to encompass in terms of its adjudication, all of our existence in humanity. Until we do that, we're playing with terms that, I'm sorry, they're just insufficient for the very task we're approaching.
Thanks for listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts or questions on this episode, so leave a comment at the website, untanglingchristianity.com. We also invite you to join our private Facebook group. To receive an invitation, send an email to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com and tell us your biggest need or problem when it comes to Christianity. We'll get an invitation right out to you. Music on this podcast is made possible by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Tune in next week for a new episode.